scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. If you were with us in our prayer meeting this past week, this this is a passage that we looked into. Um, there is such a glorious message here that we will we will continue looking at it in this morning's service. Um, especially verse 8, but let us read all of chapter 25. And as, as we read, keep in mind that, that this chapter comes after 12 chapters where God is going from nation to nation, from Babylon to Egypt to Edom, the Assyrians, 12 chapters where God is speaking of His judgment. But then this is one of the concluding chapters. Chapter 25, 26, and 27 are all the concluding chapters of all of those that, that came before regarding um, God's judgment. And this is what we read. 25, verse 1. O Lord, Thou art my God, I will exalt Thee. I will praise Thy name, for Thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For thou hast made of a city a heap, of a defensed city a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee. The city of the terrible nations shall fear thee. For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in the distress. In his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud. The branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. And in the mountain, in this mountain, shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees, well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, there is our God, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down from the dunghill. And he shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them, as he that swimmeth spreadeth forth his hands to swim. And he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands. And the fortress of the high fort of thy wall, walls shall he bring down, Lay low and bring to the ground, even to the dust. Thus far in the reading of God's holy word. And let us come 
Imagine a giant, glorious tree that has grown for many, many years and the shade is very great. It is full of fruit in that tree. It feeds many people. Many of the animals in the field find good shade under that tree. It is a glorious tree for many, many years. But then it is suddenly cut down and all that is left is the stump. And to the sight and mind of many people, they think that's the end of that tree. But then this, this is a figure that we have from the book of Isaiah that out of that very stump, to the surprise of those who would pass by, there would be a little shoot coming forth, just a little sprig. And everybody who would see it would probably think, that's, that's nothing, I've seen trees do that. It'll be a bush at the most. It'll be ugly. It never grows to be like the tree. Probably it'll never bear fruit. Well, this is where we left off. When we last saw Isaiah together here at church, we were looking um, at a chapter that we called a hymn of thanksgiving. That was chapter 12. And we saw that the occasion of thanksgiving was that even though God was promising to, their peop- to His people that if they would not repent of their sins, they would be sent into captivity, God had given two glorious promises by which they could thank Him. One, there would be a remnant. They would come back. It wouldn't be the end. The, the judgment by which the people would be sent captive into Babylon was not the last word. God would be merciful and allow a group to come back. That would be the remnant. And in the history, we see that. It was actually three groups of um, men and women and children who returned from Babylon um, and resettled in Judah and rebuilt Jerusalem. But the second promise that was really more glorious than that was that of a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch that would grow out of its roots. And this is precisely fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. His very birth um, would, would be parallel to someone who passes by and sees the stump in that little sprig and would think nothing of it. We hear of the birth of the Lord Jesus, if you were in those days, and heard that the message is that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem that would already indicate something to the effect of just a little sprig coming off of a stump. Okay, you're, you're saying things that sound glorious. You're mentioning angels, but all I've heard was of a little baby born in a stable, placed in a manger. And to the family, yes, of David, but this is a a poor um, part of the family. Mary and Joseph was, were, not hardly, were hardly known. And they lived in the city of Nazareth, which itself was also not very well known. That's the picture of a stump. It is the picture of a little sprig that really doesn't seem like anything will come forth out of it. But the promises in Isaiah is that this little sprig would grow 
and it would surpass the tree in glory because it would be a king that would never, ever end his kingdom. There will be a glorious tree that will come forth out of that stump. There will be fruit. There will be shade. There will be protection. And to the point that after, after 12 chapters, the last chapter we saw together was chapter 12. And if you have your Bibles open and you look at chapter 13, God promises their condemnation, judgment to Babylon. He goes from the discipline that His people would deserve, but they would return and there would be the promise of the Messiah. God goes to all the other nations. And he starts with Babylon that was used to discipline Judah. God is saying with this, I will use Babylon to discipline Judah, but not because Babylon is good. And because Babylon is being too violent and going even beyond what they should because they have their own sins, I will now punish Babylon. And then what starts is for 12 chapters, God proclaiming the judgment to all the nations in that surrounding area. And so there is Babylon in chapter 13 and 14. And then the Assyrians and the Philistines still in chapter 14. And then Moab in chapter 15 and 16. Damascus in chapter 17. Ethiopia in chapter 18. Egypt in chapter 19. In chapter 21, there is a repeat of the fall of Babylon, so certain it would be. And then he goes to Edom, and then to Arabia. And then chapter 22, Jerusalem, Shebna, Phoenicia. Shebna representing the Assyrians. And then Phoenicia in chapter 23. And if you go to chapter 24, you read this, the very first word, Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty. And maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof of the earth. Chapter 24 is God saying the whole entire world will be judged. So if there are nations and peoples that were not named, it is not that we are to breathe a sigh of relief and think, fine, there will be peace in in the rest of Africa, in South America, or in, in Australia. No. Chapter 24 is for every single area of the whole entire world. There will be judgment. Look at verse 3. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken this this word. Verse 4. The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. And why? We saw... And in our prayer meeting, in our little study there, we saw that in all of these chapters, it does not give a list of sins, a very big, long list of sins of why God is bringing the judgment. The one sin that is brought again and again is this one. Chapter 24, verse 4. The haughty people of the earth do languish. And this is what we read in chapter 25. At the very end of verse 11, it says that he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands. The one sin that God keeps repeating is the sin of pride. The sin, in essence, of being a people unto ourselves. We do not need God. We will not worship Him. We will worship what we make with our own hands. That's why Jerusalem was being disciplined. That's why they were being taken captive. And God is now calling the whole world to acknowledge 
If we stay in our pride and do not bow to the one true God, this judgment is dangerous for every soul that remains in that way. But see, God had declared the promise of a remnant and the promise of a Savior. And so now in chapter 25, as we read together, it breaks into glorious adoration. Now, the conclusion of all these chapters of, of, of judgment, you would think there would be many chapters now of lamentation, of weeping and of crying, because this judgment brought death in many parts of the whole world. But now, chapter 25, it is praise. And I want you to see in your Bibles, you go to chapter 26, see how chapter 26 is still part of this conclusion, because it starts, In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. So the, so the praise continues in chapter 26, and then you go to chapter 27, and what links this still is a great conclusion to all those 12 chapters of judgment and how praise is to be brought forth. We read chapter 27, verse 1 again. In that day... The Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan and the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. And in that day, seeing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine, I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, etc. You see how the praise continues because God is just in his judgment. And you notice how it's still in that day. It's in that day. Now, if you go to chapter 28, a new section begins. But let us look at this portion and see the the glorious promise that is here. This praise that will echo forth is because of that last promise we saw, not just of the remnant, but of the Savior. And we see what the Savior will do here in this chapter. The summary of what the Savior will do and what He will bring forth is verses 6 to 8. Let me read that verse again, those verses. So chapter 25 of verse 6. And in this mountain, and some believe that would be Mount Zion, that would be Jerusalem. And it's always a type for the church. In this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees. This means wine that is very well aged, wine that is of good vintage, the best of wines, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. So we have the promise of a great feast, and now we will see why. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that it spread over all nations. See, people did not understand Christ, did not understand God, but there will be a veil taken over, taken off. This verse 7 it is in essence the promise of some global revival that still is to come. To some degree, we believe elements of this has happened. Because people from all places of the world, this veil has been uncovered and they have been believing in Jesus through the ages. But then verse 8, He will swallow up death in victory and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. That is primarily our text. And we, we hope to look at this passage looking first of all at this last enemy 
called death. This death that will be swallowed up in victory. We'll have our first point to look at it and what it is. How sad um, that it is present in this world. None of us need to be proven this reality. But there's a biblical way to look at it that really helps us even to face it. And then we will look at the end of the last enemy. This is, this is what the promise is all about. That he will swallow up death in victory. This is a glorious promise. That which swallows our hearts in sorrow when we see it, especially of a loved one and someone near God is promising it will not stay on forever and it will be swallowed in victory. That will be our second point. And then thirdly, we will go back to verse 6 and see then this feast. This is why there is this feast of fat things, this banquet that is set before the church. It is set um, on that mountain. We can understand this clearly to be a promise for the church of the Lord Jesus that can begin on this side of heaven and that, of course, we understand will be in full fulfillment when Jesus comes back, which is even called the wedding of the Lamb, where the banquet will be eternal. But elements of that banquet starts even now. We know that it's not fully now because we still have tears. And the tears will be wiped away when Jesus comes back. But there's a beginning of a banquet even today. And so that's our third point, the feast of fat things. But let us look at the last enemy, death. There's a theological understanding of death. Death is not a natural thing. It is not up to science to teach us what death is. Science in and of itself knows nothing about death in its entirety. The reality, the the theological depth of what death is. It was God who, who spoke about death the first time to Adam and Eve, who very likely had no concept even of the possibility of death in their um, innocent state. But God said in Genesis 2.17 that the day that they would eat of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. So the concept of death entered Adam and Eve's mind. But there was no death. And, And this is important to understand. That which is the end had a beginning. Death did not always exist in this world. For however long it would have been in our minds, we never think of it having been possible, that it was many, many years that Adam and Eve lived before they sinned. We have no idea how long that took. It is possible that it was many years. But for however long it was, death did not exist. It only existed in a concept. It it was only in the mind of Adam and Eve as a warning that it could happen if they ate of that tree. They knew where the tree was. They, they, They saw it. They could contemplate it. They could think about that tree, but they could not dare eat of it or else death would begin. Death would start. But it's important to understand. We need to realize, see, Adam and Eve were our representatives We in Adam lived 
in days in which death did not exist. Death was not part of paradise in those first and early days. There was a world, there was a time in the history of the world where death did not exist. Every animal they saw lived on day after day. And Adam and Eve would have lived on from day after day. They only learned of the possibility of death because God told them of it. And then it was in their concept. And then it's important to then understand this, this theological reality. The moment they sinned is the moment that sin entered. Some theologians put it this way, that sin opened the door to death and let it in. That's, that's how it happened. Um, there was a day in which there was no death, and all of a sudden, because of sin, death came in. We read this in Romans five twelve. It says that the fact that every one of us continue to sin, um, also there's this reality that even the fact that we continue to sin, there's in that a proof that death should continue. Let me open Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed unto, upon all men, for that all have sinned. So we've looked at this verse before, and, and this is the, the power of it. This verse is showing it's not just Adam's fault that sin is in the world. We participate of this fault because all have sinned. Paul is literally putting this reality of death upon the shoulders of everyone who sins. It started with Adam, but it continues because we don't stop. We don't stop sinning, so death continues. Of course, none of us can stop but it's still a reality that the fact that we're sinning, we're, we're also to be blamed that death is here, that death is present. That's what Paul means when he says, By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so, so see, sin is really that one element that made death come into this world. It's like sin opened the door. Now, you could say... Okay, I understand this. Now, why? Why did God allow that to happen? And, and we need to understand the most simple way is simply to say because He is good. Imagine what world we would be in if God had never given any consequence if there was sin and transgression. And think of all the sin that's round about us with as many disciplinary measures that God has given. Imagine if He had given none. If men were to eat of that fruit and think nothing happened, we can keep eating. And I can violate you and you can violate that person and you can lie and you can steal 
and, and there's no concept of property, there's no concept of obedience because we never die. Nothing ever happens. It's like God doesn't even care. You think the world is hard to live in today, it would be harder still. Sinners would live on forever and they would live sinning freely, immensely, undauntedly. And God was good. And He said, I'm not going to allow that. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. See, death is a consequence of sin. And it has been used through the ages to keep people more careful not to sin. But it entered through sin. And it was God being good so that sin wouldn't prevail in every corner of this world. Um, Richard Sibbs, he says this about death. Um, It shows into words the grotesque reality of death. And I'm just saying this so that we can go soon to our second point, which gives us all the joy and glory to know that this very tyrant that I will read Richard Sibbs describing will be swallowed up in victory. So Richard Sib said, Death is the great captain and ruling king of the world. For no king hath such dominion as death hath. It spreads its government and victory over all nations. He is equal, though a tyrant. As a tyrant spares none, he is equal in this. He subdueth young and old, poor and rich. He levels scepters and spades together. He levels all. There is no difference between the dust of an emperor and the meanest man. He is a tyrant that governs over all, and so there is this equity in him. He spares none. And this is why Paul calls death the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15.26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so this is what death is. We, we know that it is a very sad reality, and yet we need to understand how it entered. It wasn't that God created death. No one can ever say that. It is not a creation. It is a decreation. And it is in consequence of our rebellion, our sin. And if it had not been brought in, then this world would be more wicked than it is. It was, it was God's justice. It was God's goodness. But God did not leave this world to death for it to have its last word. And, and this is where we go into our second point, the end of the last enemy like Paul Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15:26 the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death and certainly Paul was thinking of verse 8 of Isaiah 26 he will swallow up death in victory now beloved if you if you have time and when you do Go back to God's word. Start in chapter 12, that hymn of thanksgiving, and then go into chapter 13. Go to chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19, 20, 21, 23, 24, 25. By the time you get to chapter 25, you're going to see how glorious it is to know that he will swallow up death and victory because all of those lands and all of those peoples and then add what we understand of reality and we know the history of what has been happening. There's war in Ukraine right now and you read the numbers and you hear of thousands upon thousands of people who are dying. 
And we know loved ones who have died. And, 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 and we see it all around us. And, and see, the, the effect here is that God is saying, yes, there is all that judgment and there is all this death, but it will be swallowed up. Death will die. And, and this is exactly what John Owen, the, the memorable title of his book, The Death of Death, In the Death of Christ. And in that title, we have the reality here that death will be swallowed and how it will be swallowed. It will be through the death of the Lord Jesus. And this is what we'll be seeing in this second point. So how? How can this swallowing of death happen? If death is such a conqueror, if it is everywhere, how will its dominion end? How is that possible? Well, number one, one who possessed divine life and in his divinity would never, ever die. But he had to step into our reality, into this cruel world of death where death is ruling, as we heard Richard Sibbs say. He came into this world and took upon a humanity that could die. That's how it started. For the death of Christ to kill death, it started with the incarnation of He who could never die, but He took upon Himself humanity that could die. It starts there. And of course, I could even go beyond that beginning and say that it started in the heart of God in the Trinity where they knew that in the creation of the world there would be sin and they have what we has been called a pact of peace where God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit agreed that they would work together in unison but each with their office and there would be the incarnation there would be the Son of God who would become flesh and come and die for sinners. It really started in eternity. But let's start with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, this is why Christmas is to be celebrated. This is why we need to remember the birth of Christ. Once a year is not enough, and we don't have to be kept to once a year. But this is why the birth of Christ is so glorious. It is the beginning of the fulfillment of death being swallowed up in victory. Had he not come to this world, death would always prevail. So he came into this world, the incarnation, and part of this incarnation is that he had to come pure and free from sin, or else he himself would have to pay the wages of sin for himself. And so part of the miracle of the incarnation is not only that he took on flesh, but he took on sinless flesh. And this is why, boys and girls, the reason we speak of the Virgin Mary, that Jesus came from the Virgin Mary, the glorious thing of that birth, is not just the miracle, but the fact that he came without sin through a woman who had not yet been married to a man. If Jesus had come from a man and a woman, like all of us have, our mom and dad, then sin would have come from that Adam who sinned. Sin would have traveled in terms of the genealogy, and and he would have received sin if he had been born like all of us are because of our head, Adam. 
See, it would have passed. That, that, that sin reality that Adam was our representative would have passed all the way to Jesus. That's why Jesus couldn't have an earthly father. But by having an earthly mother, he had humanity. And by not having an earthly father, he had sinlessness, purity. So he was born into this world with a holy heart. That's what the angel said, the holy thing. He is pure. He has no sin. The second thing we look at is that this Lord Jesus who came into the world as a man and yet divine and pure and holy, he lived upon this earth and Satan tried to make him sin. Satan knew that if he had one sin that would be enough where he would have to die himself. The wages of sin is death and Jesus would have to receive that wage. He he would be under the curse. He would be one who would have to die and not for the sins of others but his own. So he tried. Just like he tried to make Adam and Eve sin and was successful, he tried to make Jesus sin but he was unsuccessful. Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden with all the helps they could possibly have, enough fruit to have chosen and not the one they couldn't. Jesus was tempted, we do believe, throughout many periods of his life, but primarily of what's recorded in the wilderness when he was hungry and thirsty in a wilderness. There was nothing to comfort him, and yet he stood by the word of God. He clung in faith to the promises. He never doubted God's love. He was never coveting what Satan was offering. He never desired the glory of the kingdom without the cross as Satan was promising him. And so he never sinned. And Satan kept trying. We we shouldn't think that those were the only three temptations Jesus suffered. He was tempted in all ways such as we are all through his life. That was just like a little example. And then he never, ever sinned. So that's the second thing. He came pure and he remained pure. And then thirdly, the third reality of how death is swallowed up in victory is that he who knew no sin, he was made sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So thirdly, we think of the reality that our sins were placed upon Him. The Father placed the sins of all His people upon the Lord Jesus Christ so that then with that burden of sin upon Him, He had to die. But this have to die was still voluntary because none of those sins were his. So he never had to die in terms of justice. He had to die in terms of promise because he promised to the Father in eternity past that he would come. And there were these promises that he would be the Messiah, that he would be the rod of the stem of Jesse. And so he had to die in that way, but never in a legal way never in a necessity in terms of justice. It was all voluntary because of love. 
So he became sin for us. The sins of all God's people were placed upon him. And because he had those sins, he gave himself to death. And beloved, see, this is what we need to put together. We're reading that he will swallow up death in victory. And for that to happen, Jesus had to be swallowed up by death. And there was an apparent victory. There was a supposed victory. Um, The kingdom of darkness thought they were victorious. The leaders who sent him to die thought he was dead. But then, of course, the fourth reality to make this promise possible is that Jesus arose from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 puts that all together. For since by man came death, that was Adam, By man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made of life, be made alive. So death did not have the last word in Jesus' life. Jesus was in the realm of death. See, it was supposed, it was a supposed victory for death, but Jesus was really as a king in the realm of death. By being there, his body was battling, as it were, against death. His soul came to him on the third day, and he arose out of the grave victorious. And his, his coming forth out of death is, of course, communicating that death did not swallow him eternally. Death did not have that last grasp upon him. Now, all of this being said, we we need to ask the question, how can the victory of Christ over death be my victory over my death? How can I be in Christ? We understand God's Word says that we must be in Him. How can I be in Him so that what He conquered is for me, so that He will swallow up death and victory in my case, so that my tears will be washed away? And I, I love it how Richard Sibbs puts it. He says, He is ours if we believe. And by faith, this victory is ours. And time will come when in our persons it shall be swallowed up in victory. Labor, therefore, to be one with Christ crucified. This was the Puritan's way to say, Believe in Jesus. They're not implying that we have the power to make ourselves one in Christ. But when you trust in Jesus, that is happening. You become one with Christ crucified. He says, to get our sins crucified and ourselves partakers of his death. And then no damnation, no fear of death to them that are in Christ. They may die, but they are freed from eternal death and they shall rise again even as Christ's body rose to glory. Get therefore into Christ. It's Richard Sib saying, believe in Jesus. Get into Christ and desire the power of His death, subduing sin. In what measure we grow in that, we grow in boldness and joy and whatsoever privileges follow Christ. And then we have 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four fulfilled. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
See, here Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 was referring to Isaiah 25, 8 directly. When you believe in Jesus, your body, which is corruptible, will become incorruptible in the resurrection of the dead. So basically, Paul is saying, yes, we, we, we may die. If Christ tarries, we may die. Our bodies will be buried. But if you die in Christ, that, that, that burial is like a sleep. And when Jesus comes back, your body will rise again. Your corruptible will put on incorruption. That's, that hasn't happened yet. This body is still corruptible. But when the resurrection of the dead happens, this corruptible will put on incorruptible and then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. So, beloved, verse 8, we have the promise that this will happen, but death is still happening, so it's still not swallowed, but the truth of it is already certain. So much so that those who experience death, but are believers, they experience death without its sting. Right? Isn't this what God's Word says? That death has lost its sting. And this is how we're to see it. If you're outside of Jesus, death has a sting. If you're in Jesus, death has no more sting. And think of the sting, boys and girls. Think of, a, of, a, of one of those bugs that the sting, of course, is through which the poison goes into you. And so death with a sting has power to keep someone dead. And the Bible even calls it the second death. Um, reading one of the sermons of the Puritans, they speak of the attendance of death. We think death is bad. Death has its, has its, its attendance. And one of its attendants is hell. And that will be eternal death. So as hard as death is here in this world, it, if it has its sting, beloved, this is where you flee from with all your power and forth and strength. And this is where, where men like Sibs would say, labor therefore to be one with Christ crucified. Do not give your heart sleep if you're still outside of Jesus. Because if you die without Jesus, there will be a sting and the attendance of death will follow, which is death and eternity. And beloved, those are the hearts that should tremble. But see, you're alive. You're hearing God's word. It is God calling to you and promising to you. If you haven't yet, if you trust in this Jesus, if you say, Lord Jesus, thy death must be mine. May my sins be counted when you died on the cross. Please cancel my debt. Forgive me for all my sins. And the moment that happens, death loses its sting. It has no more poison. When you die physically, there will be no attendance of hell in eternity. Your soul will go immediately to heaven and you will already be enjoying the bliss of the presence of God, only not with your body. And the body will be asleep. That's what the Bible says death is for the believer. It is asleep. And just like for you and me, don't let that bother you anymore. But you know how when you're very tired and you sleep and you wake up and it's so quick and you feel sad? You shouldn't feel sad. God is communicating with you. It's like a sermon. He's saying just as fast as this night was, so it will happen when you die in Christ. It's like you're buried. When you open your eyes, you're awake and Christ is coming. The resurrection happened. 
It's not like people's bodies on the grave. They're counting the time and thinking it's long and having nightmares. It's asleep. And you know how, I, how it is. The sweet sleep is so fast. Let that be a sermon for you. God is communicating to you how fast the burial process will be for the body of the person who died in Christ. Isn't this precious? And that's what gives power to even start wiping away some tears today and making this world the beginning of a banquet, like we read in verse 6. And so let's go to our third point, the feast of fat things. And I just have a few things to say here. See, verse 6 introduces this feast, and you're wondering, how, how can there be a party? We read of all those chapters talking about judgment and judgment and judgment. This is not time for a banquet. This is a time for sorrow and for mourning. But all of a sudden we read, And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people. And it's not just His people. It is all people. So now here's even the promise of the Gentiles who will enter in. All people, a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees, well refined. Why? There are two reasons why. Verse 7, because those who had been covered, it will be uncovered. And what will they see? Verse 8, they will see that death, which is so horrible and so tyrannical, it will one day end. And all the tears will be wiped. So if that is the truth, we can begin the feasting now. The feasting is not complete. We don't feast without tears. The tears still continue. We still see people dying, and we see war, and it makes us sad. See, the tears are not awkward. They are necessary. We need to weep with those who weep. But we have the promise of this feast. And to some degree, as we are in this wilderness of this world, we can rejoice. And we can be joyful. Even if it is just knowing that all these things will be fulfilled one day concretely. What is this feast of fat things? Um, Spurgeon has a whole sermon just about this feast. And it's very interesting, the title he gives it. He calls it Good Cheer for Christmas because he's saying how at Christmas time we have banquets and we have celebrations and we have good food at the table and we have um, um, things that make our heart rejoice and he's saying this is a picture of the banquet full of good food and things that make our heart rejoice and what are the things that make our heart rejoice in the Christian life it is everything that Christ has conquered to us All I've said so far is that when Jesus died on the cross, He makes it where you and I will not die forever. But there are more. There are more things. They're all connected. And I won't have time to go through it, but this is all His sermon is is on all these things, all these glorious truths. These are, in essence, in summary, the glories of of what you and I have in the gospel. Not too many sermons ago, we went through many of them. The forgiveness of your sins. Beloved, that is better than any wine. No matter how well aged a wine is in this world. To go 
to bed with your conscience clean that your sins are washed away, that is already reason for the most glorious and joyful banquet. Because that means that that God that you were in enmity against, you are now reconciled to. That that God who was an enemy to you because of your sins, and He's just, so He cannot parley with those who are in, the, in their sins and in rebellion, that enmity both ways are gone away. There is peace with God. There is access to God. And that, beloved, are the fat things. That is the sweet and aged wine. And they're better, of course, than those things. To be adopted as the sons of God, children of God, that we look to God and say, Father, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that He gives to you, not to be one who is beside you, but one who is inside you, God Himself, and through whom He gives you all that you need to walk upon this earth, giving glory to God. He comforts you. He sanctifies you. He guides you. He teaches you. He teaches you to pray. He leads you to Christ. He convicts you of sin. He reminds you all that we saw in the beginning of the sermon, how sin is the one that brought death in. Beloved, you you see how gracious God is. Yes, there is sin. Sin ushered in death. So Christ comes to the world sinless, but He takes our sins. Then He dies. And by faith in Jesus, you can partake of this feast forever. Just to emphasize faith... If you go to chapter 26, and I'll begin reading in verse 1 all the way to verse 4. And notice how God placed here that faith is that connecting way of all these glories. And here you are. Can I feast? Can I rejoice? Can I have these certainties to myself? How? How can what Jesus does be mine? And look at verse 20. Verse 1 of 26. In that day shall this psalm be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. This is a very well known verse. Because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. In the very word everlasting, you see death swallowed. Everlasting lasts forever. Death has lost completely its grip. And how? By trusting. Trusting in Jesus. It is not you trying hard. It is not that God looks at you and says, you know, you've been so faithful, I'll finally bless you with all of these glories. It is looking to the Lord Jesus. And you see Him crucified. And you believe that there lies my Savior. And He's dying because of my sins. I deserved His death. 
and his punishment, his hell. But I believe he took it for me. Because he's able and he is willing. And you shall have everlasting life. Christian, never forget that. Never forget that all the glory belongs to him. And let us be in our, in our spiritual life living this very banquet. We have these fat things already before us that are already for us to partake of. We understand that there will be some tears even as we have the banqueting. But may the eternal banquet already start comforting you in your tears today and even wipe some of them. And one day they will be fully wiped. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we thank Thee for this promise. Lord, we, we are so hurt by the reality of death, especially, Lord, when it comes closer to us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would be made to see that death will not have the last word. For every single soul who has ever trusted in Jehovah, death has already lost its grip. It lost its sting. And we look forward, Lord, to the day that it will be swallowed itself. And when souls and bodies are joined in heaven forever, there will be no more death in the new heavens, in the new earth. And we thank Thee, Lord. And while our tears are still present, do comfort our hearts, Lord, to know these things are so. And guide souls, Lord, to find in Christ the safety for their souls if they still are outside of Christ. Lord, may they listen to the summons of a late pastor who says to labor to become one in Christ, to get Christ. Oh, Lord, give faith to such hearts to look to Jesus and trust Him. We need Thee, Lord, for that. So we plead that Thou would do it. We ask in His name. Amen.